Galatians 1, 1 through 5. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, The Apostle Paul was one of the most significant inspired writers and leaders of the church besides the Apostle Peter. He wrote 13 letters of the 27 books of the New Testament. Today we will begin to consider one of those letters. Uh, This letter was written to the churches of southern Galatia or modern day Turkey. Uh, Some of these churches would have been located in Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derb. These were churches that Paul planted during his first missionary journey, and the accounts of these churches can be found in Acts chapter 13 and 14. Uh, This letter was believed to be written about 48 AD, uh, before the Jerusalem Council found in Acts chapter 15, which we will get to later. So this was an early Christian letter as it was written before the four Gospels, as were many of Paul's letters. But the letter written to the Galatians is different than his other letters, and it is one of the most important letters for the Christian to understand. Also, it is one of the most controversial letters when it comes to interpretation. Because depending on how you interpret various portions of this letter, it will affect how you view the Christian and the Christian life in its totality. It will affect how you answer the question, what or who is the Christian? Just in the first five verses, you get a sense of what the entire letter is about, and you get the tone of the letter as well. With his standard greeting, Paul greets the Galatian church in a similar way that he greets all the other churches in his other letters. Uh, You can look at his letters written to the Romans, Uh, Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Thessalonians, Colossians, his letters to Timothy and Philemon. But there are a couple of significant differences in this greeting. Unlike his other letters, uh, Paul doesn't give thanks for the Galatian churches, nor does he mention that he has been praying for them. No thanksgiving and no prayers. Now, this doesn't mean he didn't love them, but it means that he had a deep concern for their spiritual state. It's like a parent who is uh, concerned over his child who is going astray. Because just like all churches, there were problems in the Galatian churches, but their problem was much more severe than the common problems we have in our churches. It's not one of those problems that we can work on over time. This is not an issue of Christian maturity. 
It's not an issue of sanctification. These are not character flaws that he is addressing here. It is a fundamental problem. It is a problem that will decide whether or not they are to be considered a true church. It is a problem that will decide whether or not they are true Christians. It is a matter of salvation. And so Paul, as a minister of the gospel, was compelled to send a letter to correct the problem. What was the problem? Well, the problem was false teaching. False teaching corrupts the root or the foundation of the Christian life. Paul believed that they were departing from the faith altogether because false teaching leads people to eternal damnation. It leads people to hell. This is why the tone of this letter is much more serious than his other letters. It had to do with the truth of the gospel, which we find at the root, at the foundation of the Christian life. Now, what was the false teaching? Well, there were false teachers in the church, commonly called the Judaizers. And they were teaching that in order to be saved, in order to be considered a true follower of Christ, you had to be circumcised. They were adding to the perfect and complete work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Later on, the Jerusalem Council will make a final declaration and reject this false teaching in Acts chapter 15. So we find ourselves not too long before the Jerusalem Council as Paul was in the middle of debating this issue with these churches. Here, Paul purposely addresses this church with a greeting which gives us a bird's eye view of his argument. Uh, I have broken it up into three headings. He wants them to know first how he was divinely appointed with, secondly, a divine message of divine deliverance, and thirdly, not to benefit himself, but for divine glory, for the glory of God. So first, Paul starts off by introducing himself. Paul, an apostle. Now, what is an apostle? What makes an apostle uh, different from a modern-day disciple, pastor, or elder? An apostle is one who was personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself in his risen flesh to preach the gospel and plant churches. Listen to how he adds, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Today, when we elect and appoint elders or ministers, we start off by recognizing that the Lord has given him a gift of teaching. It begins with the Lord. The Lord calls elders and pastors. We recognize his desire to teach. We look for Christian maturity. We confirm this calling with other believers in the congregation. Then the Lord opens doors for him to teach and preach before we ordain and install him into the position of leadership. But in the apostles' time, the first generation church, Jesus directly appointed and commissioned his apostles to the preaching of the gospel. 
He would grant them authority and power from on high for the performing of miracles, all for the expansion of the church, the expansion of the kingdom. There was a goal to the apostleship, and then the apostolic gifts were not meant to be repeated. So today we no longer have the office of apostle. But the question for us is, why is he introducing himself in this way to the Galatians? Listen again, as he stated that he was an apostle, not from men, nor through man. That is key. There were some men, as it says in Acts 15 verse 1, who came down from Judea. Most likely they were former Pharisees and teachers of the law who were going around these churches teaching the doctrines of men, not of God. And these men were even questioning whether or not Paul was sent by the apostles. So Paul was saying in response to them, I wasn't sent to you by men. My message is not from men. My authority is not from men. In fact, my authority doesn't even come from the apostles. See, the authority of an apostle came directly from Christ himself. Yes, Christ was a man, but he was no ordinary man. He was also the Lord our God. See, this text proves the divinity of Christ. Christ is set apart from other men here as he is equal with the Father in authority to send out the apostles. Remember Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus and how it was the Lord Jesus himself in his resurrected state who came to him and later commissioned him. This made Paul a witness of the resurrected Christ. Christ gave him authority to expand and oversee the church. His calling was a divine calling, a divine appointment, not through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ and that has bearing on what he is going to say to the Galatians here. Now, Paul was not at all saying that he was a lone ranger or that he was God's gift to the church. Even though he was sent by Jesus and God the Father, he would still receive the right hand of fellowship and be recognized by the other apostles in Jerusalem as a preacher of the gospel. In other words, he wasn't flying solo. Notice, he adds, that it wasn't just him sending the letter, but also he was with his brothers. Brothers who were in agreement with the gospel that Paul was preaching. It may have been Paul, Barnabas, and the other apostles writing to the churches in Galatia, warning them of false teaching. See, there are many today who claim to be Christians, and yet they refuse to receive the apostles' teaching in the gathering of the saints. They refuse to accept the truth of God because they have traded it for a worldly message. But this is what Paul is going to address here. Why? Because the Galatians are refusing a divine message and trading it for a worldly one. So secondly, what was this message that Paul was going to present to the Galatians? Well, it is a divine message of divine deliverance. It was a message of freedom. 
these former Pharisees were going around trying to add works to salvation. Uh, They may have attended worship with God's people. They may have thought they were orthodox in their teaching. They most likely prayed, tithed, they kept the Sabbath, and they most likely lived moral lives. But they rejected the divine message of divine deliverance, which cannot be earned by what you do. This is why the first words we hear every Lord's Day is grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is purposeful. When you come to church, you ought to hear of God's grace and peace. You ought to hear and know that you are not in church because you have done something right or that you have done something good that makes you deserve to be here. No one deserves to be here. We are here by God's grace and peace. It is to calm your hearts before the presence of the Lord. And these are the first words that Paul has for the Galatian churches. He will go on to describe what that grace and peace would entail. Uh, Grace has been defined as unmerited favor. But a better definition, as uh, J.V. Fesco gives us here, would be demerited favor. Why? Because grace is shown to us despite our demerits, which means we're not just undeserving creatures who cannot merit God's favor, but we have actively done exactly what deserves God's wrath in that we have broken his law. So it is despite our demerits, our active disobedience, that he shows us favor. He doesn't show us favor because we have done something right or good. And by grace, he grants us peace. This is not just talking about a a feeling of rest or solitude. Uh, This is not like peace man, like the hippies used to say. This is not Richard Nixon waving the peace sign saying, peace, I'm out of here. At least that's what I think he was doing. No. Grace grants us peace with God. We were once his enemies, but now we are no longer his enemies. We are his friends. We once had no peace with God, but now we have peace with God. We were once captives, but now we have been delivered. How? How do we receive this grace and peace. How are we delivered from this captivity? He first answers how, then he tells us what we have been delivered from. How do we receive grace and peace? How are we delivered? Well, grace and peace can only come from God, not from man, and definitely not from what we have done. Notice once again, confirming that Jesus Christ is divine along with his father. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who, that is Jesus, gave himself for our sins. 
We know from Acts 2.23 that Jesus was delivered up, that is, delivered up to be crucified and killed on a cross, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God his Father. And this was the means by which Jesus would accomplish our deliverance, our redemption, our peace with God. Paul says this because the Galatian churches were moving away from this divine message of deliverance to a works-based religion, to a human-made religion. They were legalists. They wanted to add works to Christ's finished work so that it would become a merit-based system. But what he is trying to communicate is that human effort cannot save. All human efforts cannot save. Many of you are probably saying to yourselves that circumcision was not instituted by human effort. God instituted it. Yes, but there was an expiration date, just like the nation of Israel. The expiration was the coming of Christ. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant, but it was also a sign of judgment. It was a sign of being set apart for God, but it was also a sign of being cut off from the people of God if you fell under the covenant curses. That's why it involved cutting. So this circumcision was finally fulfilled in the cutting off of the Messiah, the true Israel, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That is why Paul calls the cross of Christ the circumcision of Christ in Colossians 2.11. But the Galatians were trading this divine gospel for a man-made gospel. They were trading a divine message of deliverance for an earthbound message of slavery to the law. They were trading salvation by grace through faith for salvation by works. Now this letter is as much for us as it was for the Galatians. Because we are all legalists by nature. When we become Christians... Legalism doesn't just disappear. We slowly learn how to live by God's grace. And evidence of this is that many of us, and I'm speaking about Christians in general, many of us don't see the need to listen to a divine message of divine deliverance on Sunday mornings. We'd rather hear a pep talk or a TED talk. We'd rather hear about all the practical ways we can solve all of our problems in life. We'd rather hear someone go on a rant about a cultural narrative. We'd rather hear a list of what Christians should be involved in. But do we ever recognize that what we are here to listen to is a divine message of deliverance, a divine message of redemption, a redemption that is not man-made, a redemption that is not made by hands. Sermons are not meant to be motivational speeches. Sermons are not here for entertainment. They are divine proclamations 
of the divine gospel that Jesus was delivered up so that we may be delivered. And it was all by God's grace. We can't earn it by our works. That's why sermons can't be motivational speeches. We're not here to give you a list of how-tos or do's and don'ts without being anchored in this divine gospel. Paul told them how we are delivered, how we receive grace and peace. Now he tells them what we have been delivered from. Paul says that Jesus gave himself first for our sins. He died in our place. He took on our guilt for the sins we have committed. Sins that deserve eternal punishment. And not only that, but secondly, he died to deliver us from this present evil age. See, the Christian is caught between two ages. There's the present age and the age to come. This present evil age represents the reign of Adam. The age to come represents the reign of the second and last Adam, Jesus Christ. This present evil age is governed by sin, death, and the principles of the prince of the power of the air, Satan. So we can say that the present evil age is made up of this fallen flesh, this entire fallen world or the fallen universe after the fall of man into sin. Uh, this is why Paul calls Satan the God of this world, or the better translation is the God of this age. It's the same word. Now, this doesn't mean that everything in this world or this age is bad. Uh, this doesn't mean we retreat from the world and isolate ourselves. Uh, there is a lot of good in this world that we can use and enjoy and use it for God's glory. But when we speak of this evil age, we must specify that this is the age that is governed by sin and Satan. Everything we see has been affected in some way by sin and Satan. So we're not called to isolate ourselves, but it is a call to be sober-minded about the truth that this age will one day pass away, and the Lord Jesus Christ, through what He has accomplished, He alone has secured a place for us in the age to come. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, He that is God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we are to live in light of this truth. Now you would have to ask, why does Paul tell the Galatians that through Christ we have been delivered from the present evil age? Because the problem with the false teachers, the Judaizers, was that they were so tied to this present evil age. It wasn't just about circumcision. Uh, these were transplanted Jews who wanted to reestablish the nation of Israel. They wanted to go back to the way things used to be. They didn't realize that these were all things that were meant to pass away. It was a hard transition for many Jews to go from being the favored people of God to becoming equals with the Gentiles in one gathering, the church. 
So the false teachers leveraged this difficult transition to influence the Galatians. But this is not just a problem for the Galatians. This is also a problem for Christians as well. One of the greatest struggles of Bible-believing Christians in our nation is that we are so tied down to this age. There are whole biblical interpretations of the Bible that distort the truth that this age is going to pass away pretty quickly and the new heavens and the new earth will come. We put too much stock in this age. We're too busy building for this age and not the age to come. Jesus clearly said, my kingdom is not of this world. Peter said, this age is going to pass away and dissolve. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's another word for the word dissolved. It's like when you come to the end of a meeting and you dissolve the meeting. The meeting had a purpose and then it was over. This age serves its purpose and it will soon be over. And all that was done will be judged and weighed on the balances. Now when Christ came, he inaugurated or he introduced the age to come. The age when righteousness will reign forever. This means that the new age of the reign of Christ is already here, and at the same time, it is not yet fully here. It is here in seed form. You get a little foretaste of this new age when you fellowship with one another, or when you gather for worship on the Lord's Day. If you want to see the reign of Christ, it is seen here in the church, though it is with a veil. But this new age will not be fully realized until Christ's return, when he brings the new heavens and the new earth, the new world, or the new age. So until then, our minds are to be heavenward. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. This does not mean we retreat from the world, But it is to change the way we think about what we do and how we do it in this world so that in everything we do, we seek the glory of God. We seek to please God most of all. This is where we go next because thirdly, Paul is not just flexing his muscle here. He is not just throwing his weight around in this letter. These are the words of a loving overseer, a loving pastor, one who cares for Christ's people and the state of their souls. Because redemption is for the glory of God. He says that our redemption was accomplished not by the will of men and not for the glory of men, but according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In the strict translation, it would be to whom be the glory ages Ages, or ages upon ages, which is best translated as forever and ever. God is sovereign over all ages, the present evil age and the age to come. And all roads lead to his glory. The entire plan of salvation was planned by God, and it was all for his glory. The salvation of sinners glorifies God, while false teaching does not glorify God, no matter how well-meaning 
the teachers are. False teaching is a rejection of God and his plan of salvation in Christ. Uh, This is why false teaching is so serious. And, And this is why knowing sound doctrine is so important. Because false teaching takes the glory away from God and gives it to men. Men and their faulty ideas. And this is why the Reformation was so important. Not only the gospel, but also the glory of God was at stake. This is why the fight against biblical liberalism in our churches was so important in the 1920s and 30s. The glory of God was at stake. They were trying to replace the grace of God with the works of men. If you think this sort of false teaching is something new or something old, and it cannot touch our churches today, think again. There have been many who have taught that salvation is by faith and works. And oftentimes we don't want to call people out on false teaching, maybe because of their level of education, or they have a title, or they have a name, or we appeal to love. But beloved, rebuking someone for false teaching doesn't mean you don't love them. Christian institutions will often side with false teachers Maybe because they support a similar worldly agenda or maybe because of popularity. They forget about their divine calling in the glory of God. Although Paul was an apostle and he had a different role than we do today, yet we too have a divine appointment. We too have a divine message of divine deliverance. And we too are expected to be a church that seeks the glory of God not men. First, as a church, we have a divine appointment. As Christians, both ministers and members, we have been called out of the world by God's grace to be united to Christ. That's what it means to be a church. We are not a community. The church is not a community. We are a communion. We have a common union with Christ And one another. We have a spiritual and mystical. When I say mystical, I'm not talking about mysticism. I'm talking about what you can't see or taste or touch. We have a mystical union with Christ and with one another. Second, we have a divine message of divine deliverance. Everything we do as a church, finds its origin in this message of salvation by God's grace. God sent His Son into the world to be delivered up for our sins. His dead body was raised on the third day to deliver us from this present evil age. It is not a worldly message. It is not a political message. Though it is in the sense that Christ is king, but remember his kingdom is not of this world. So his politics is not of this world. You want to see the manifestation of his kingdom? You come to church, not the White House. It is not a message that will make you feel at home in this world. It is a message that speaks of the age to come and how this age is passing away. So the question is, where will your heart, soul, and mind be directed? So often our hearts, souls, and minds are so tied down to this world, to this age. 
So often we are tied down by legalism or by some new trend that is taking the church captive. But the gospel of grace transforms and redirects us heavenward to where Christ is. Grace grants true peace in a way that no human work can. So third, we are to be a church that seeks the glory of God, not men. Our existence as a church is not what the world makes it out to be. We're not here because of the world. We're not here to live up to the world's standards. We're not here to please the world. And remember, when I say the world, I'm talking about the kingdom of sin and Satan. And how that kingdom has blinded the understanding of the world in general about what or who the church is to become. The church is here by God's grace. We're not here for humanitarianism. We're not here for any social movements. We're not here for social programs. This has led to much confusion in the church. To the point where churches have closed down. They've closed their doors and reopened as town halls, libraries, or museums. There is always someone trying to give the church advice on what she should do or become. Thank you, but no thanks. Do we care for the poor? Of course we do. But that does not define our existence. The Lord our God has already established what we are to do and what we are to become. And it is all by God's grace. So let us not act as if we've earned all this. Let us not act as if our salvation and the fruits of it, like this church, was not given to us as a gift. Rather, let us say with Paul, but by the grace of God, I am here. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Amen.